0: All right, so the Saunders girls just went on holidays, right? And we went down to Evans Head. And uh, you want to experience spiritual warfare, you get a big family in a small tent. No, I'm just kidding. It was good. We had a good time. Um, we, uh, we stayed in a uh, camper trailer down there. And uh, we had an interesting next-door neighbour. This was our next-door neighbour down there. Uh, that, it says the Darcy Mobile. We, we got there. I don't know. We got there and... Uh, This guy's already there. Now, I'm telling you, straight up, we just thought he was a permanent resident, right? Now, if you know what I'm talking about with permanent residents in caravan parks, at that point in time, you're just going, oh, this is a bit interesting, right? Permanent resident. Now, for the 10 days or nine days we were there, we did not see him go in that tent. I don't even know what was in the tent, all right? At the tent there, it was one guy and he would have been probably 19, 18 or 19 and he literally just. Sometimes he was in the caravan and often he'd go away in the afternoons. He'd never, ever made eye contact with us the whole time that we were there. And we literally, it's like one of the weirdest things. Like, is it, who's been camping here? Camping's really weird, isn't it? Like, there's people that don't say hello. And that, like, that's weird. But then there's this other weird thing that goes on when you do camping where you get to know these. You spend like 18 hours a day with some people and then you walk away, you don't even know their name. Do you know what I'm saying? You go, Alright? And you, you become, like, you develop this really close relationship, and then it's like, see you later, we'll never see you again, that was lovely. It's, it's kind of, it's almost like Facebook, really. <laughs> you can kind of say anything, and you just think no one's going to know anything that you've said, even though you've just told someone your deepest secrets, you know? It's kind of a bit like that, but this guy was one of those ones that de- he just didn't look at you, he had his head down, and he had his, he always had a jumper on with a hoodie on, and he had his hoodie over, and he just didn't want to look at you, it was really interesting. And then one night I got up in the middle of the night to, uh, to go to the, um, the bathroom and yeah. he's, he's smoking hoochie-coochie in the middle of the night, right? And uh, another day we kind of thought maybe he was buying some drugs. Some dude showed up in the car. He handed the guy something. The guy handed him something. <laughs> and just going, okay, this is interesting. So it was really interesting. Now, harmless enough... But one of the phrases we uh, we throw around a bit at the project here is this Latin phrase, "incurvatus in se, which basically means to curve in on oneself. And I sat there. While I thought he was a permanent resident, we found out later that he wasn't. And what came out in me was, a, you know, classic judgmentalism, a bit, to be honest, on the inside. I didn't probably say it out loud. Maybe there was a little bit of conversation between Ange and I. But you're just kind of going, what is going on with that guy? But it just appeared to me he was living an incredibly... As far as I could tell, he was living quite a, quite a hedonistic life. And I just thought, a life lived for self is a small life. It's just a very small life. And this um, phrase here in Curvitas in Se is to curve in on oneself. And um, maybe he's not. Maybe he's not the way that he appeared to me. And so I'll grant him that. But it looked like he was living his life for pleasure and for himself. That's what it looked like to me. And I just thought, that's kind of, I mean, there's a little bit of that in all of us, isn't there? There's a little bit of that kind of curving in on oneself. And the the interesting thing is that we think that more life's going to be found by curving in on yourself, but exactly the reverse is actually true. And the call call for, for you and the call for me, the biblical call is to live large, isn't it? To live large. And living large doesn't come from curving in on oneself. Living large comes from spinning and curving outward toward God and toward others and love for others. The gospel leads people to a very large life, a significant life, a lasting life and a life that stands the test of fire. As uh, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 12 says, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay and straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. That van won't stand the test of fire. All right, My house won't stand the test of fire that God's going to bring for it. But if you live large and you don't curve in on yourself but you curve outwards toward others and toward God and you build upon Christ, you will have something and you will do something that will stand the test of fire. So here's what I want to do today. I want to pull out four points that Paul talks about in uh, 2 Corinthians verse 4. Here's the first one. Light always beats has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, the only thing, according to this scripture, that beats light is blindness. You notice that? Light always beats darkness. I mean, you can... It's an interesting question. When things get dark, I mean, if you're in a room at home and you have a blackout... What do you need to do? Well, somehow you need to find a light. Maybe not an electrical light, but you need to find a light. And it's not like you light a match and the the darkness snuffs it out. It doesn't do that. It always loses. It always loses. And you need to know, and I need to know, that in life that's the way it's always going to be. You bring the light of God in and it's going to dispel darkness. The interesting thing about this scripture here is it says the only thing that beats darkness, sorry, light, is blindness. But then at the end, you notice what it says... At the end of that scripture there, even though blindness can beat light, what happens at the end? For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God heals blindness so that the light actually works. So you don't get rid of darkness by cursing, by casting out. You get rid of darkness by bringing the light in. And the thing for us today is don't lose hope. As dark as it gets, the light of Christ still exists and he's still in you and he's still working through you. I remember reading this book by this um, Argentinian pastor and he had someone in his church and the person in his church came up to him and he was working for uh, Ford Motor Company in uh, Argentina and he went up to his pastor and he said, it's terrible, it's terrible, my workplace is terrible, it's just, it's awful, I'm the only Christian there, I'm going to resign. And the pastor says, don't be an idiot. What do you reckon you're doing there? What do you think God's put you there? Because you're the only one. So who's going to bring the light? And I wonder about situations that you're involved in at the moment where you think, well, this is very dark. Well, you have the light of Christ living inside of you and you need to bring that into the situations around the place. That's what God wants to do. And if you're the only one, even more so. Even true? Amen? Even more so. Bring it. Bring the light in. You see, you were dark, weren't you? I was dark. And God shone in us and now God actually wants to shine through us. And you can get things like uh, 1 John 1, which talks about temptation, the darkness, living in darkness. It says this, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Isn't that beautiful? Well, you could meditate on that for a week, couldn't you? What if there was just a little bit of darkness in God? What if he wasn't morally perfect? Maybe if he was just a little bit moody and you got up this morning and you go, well, well, I'm going to, well, I need to pray and I need some help from God, but I I just don't know how, is he he in a bad mood? You know, someone like that, you kind of catch up with him, you go, well, it depends on the mood. We could go really well if they're in a good mood, but we're not going to do so well if they're not. I mean, if God had a little bit of darkness in him, you'd be a bit uncertain. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Temptation's difficult. This is really what 1 John 1's talking about. But well, what do you do when you're struggling with sin? Well, you bring the light in, don't you? So you be honest about it. You be honest about it with brothers and sisters. You be honest about it with people who pray for you. You get the lighting because you get the lighting, you dispel the darkness. That's just how it works. And the world's dark, isn't it? The world that we live in is dark. So bring the light in. Sometimes helping people is dark, isn't it? It's hard. It's, It's actually really hard. I came off nine days holidays um, to do a little bit of counselling with a couple of people the next day. And I really enjoy it, and I'm enjoying spending the time with the people, but it's, it's just hard. you know. And you can, sometimes I think, for me anyway, maybe for you too, you can get to this place where you just sense the darkness and you sense the heaviness, and you don't get a sense of the light of Christ inside of you that comes to dispel darkness. That's God's call for you, is to be someone who broadcasts light and radiates light around them in dark situations. So you want to talk to people who are really struggling because God's put something in you to shine into the darkness that they might be having, as hard as it might be. Amen? There's lots of hope in this, right? God's actually put you in an incredibly powerful position. True? You're a jar of clay, but you're in an incredibly powerful position. And you could bring a huge amount of change... In the, uh, in the places that you move in. That's the first one. Light always beats darkness. Number two, treasures in jars of clay. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7. But we have this treasure, and Paul had just finished saying, we have the treasure. The treasure is the light of the glory of Christ in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Check this out. This is uh, MJ Harris says this, a commentator. He says, Paul is contrasting the relative insignificance and unattractiveness of the bearers of the light. Some of you go, I'm offended right now. (laughs) With the inestimable, everyone say that 15 times quickly, worth and beauty of the light itself. Do you see that? Now, is God saying, my children, you are a bunch of pathetic, worthless people? No, it's not, right? What he's saying is comparatively to what you've actually got inside of you, if you were to try and compare them, you would look at it a little bit pathetic and cheap compared to that, all right? Some of you are going, did he just call me cheap? Well, not well, not ultimately. Comparatively. Do you get my point? Because clay pots, clay pots, in, in that day and age... Where, Earthen vessels were inexpensive and they were very common. They were easily broken. Isn't that true of us? Easily broken. And the interesting thing is that once they were broken, they were only good for the rubbish tip. Steel pots, they can melt down. Glass pots, they can melt down. Earthenware pots, once they're broken, they're done. Inexpensive. God's got a plan in, in putting his treasure in earthen vessels and this is it. We tend to be glory thieves. True? You like to steal stuff that belongs to him. My classic line is people like to have their hand in the till. It's like they like to take stuff away that they shouldn't be taking away. And so what does God do? He's not gonna, you know, he's not gonna give the deal to the uh, the most gifted, talented person and say, here, I want you to do my stuff, right? Because the truth is they're going to be tempted to take the glory for it. So he's going to take his stuff and put it in an earthen vessel and get them to get the job done. It's like Paul says uh, earlier in Corinthians, he says uh, that God chose the weak and the foolish things of the world to shame the the wise and the strong. That's us, right? He would say not many of you are wise or strong by worldly standards. Is that true? I don't think many of us are. I mean, don't be offended. There'd be much better things to be offended of at the project, but... That wouldn't be one of them, all right? But we're not that weak. Sorry, we're not that strong. We're not that wise. Let's be honest. But the really cool thing is God's gig is he's going to shame the strong and the wise with weak and foolish people. And that's good news for most of us here, all right? I've said it here before at the project, but um, I just remember being at school, at high school. And, uh, you know, you get to the lunchtime kind of picking teams you know, and the doughiest person gets left to the end. You know, it's like, we don't want him. And in fact, you, you, everyone's kind of measuring their worth by at what point in time you get picked for the team, by the captain of the two teams. And I always reckon that if God was picking a soccer team, he'd pick all the leg amputees first. You get what I'm saying? That, that's his gig. He just, you know, just grabs earthen vessel, can't do that much because I'm going to do something really sweet with someone that thinks they can't do that much. So as much as you think you can do, God's plan is to do way beyond that, every time. Different probably to what you think, but way beyond it. This classic uh, little uh, historical event that happens in Acts 19 verse 1 to 7, you can follow it with me. And It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Bummer that, all right, because the Holy Spirit's part of the Godhead, one of the three persons of the Godhead lives inside of people and gives them lots of power, right? That's the gig. That's what it's all about. Uh, they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptised? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptised with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him that is Jesus on hearing this they were baptized into the name of Jesus and when Paul had laid his hands on them the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying there were about 12 men in all now I'm not going to get into baptism of the Holy Spirit right that's not for today maybe we'll talk about that some other time but take the point here dudes are kicking around they didn't have the Holy Spirit they weren't, they weren't in a position of power now we're totally okay with the fact that tongues, prophecy and all the gifts of the Spirit are in operation. We've got no issue with that at all. And I've certainly been blessed by a whole bunch of prophecy, personally. And the interesting thing here is these guys didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. Power comes upon them, they speak in tongues and they prophesy. See, the scripture that we just read out of 2 Corinthians 4 says this, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing Power. You've got surpassing power. And the surpassing power comes through the Holy Spirit. On uh, holidays, and I've asked her permission to this, for this, uh, on one particular day on holidays, uh, Ange, Ange's power toothbrush ran out. Yes, it's pretty tragic. She goes, did you bring the charger? And I said, yeah, I did. Now, unbeknownst to her, I got the charger out and charged the toothbrush. You know, the next day she picked the toothbrush up and she started going like this with it right and didn't turn it on and the interesting thing for me I'm always looking for a sermon illustration. I'm sitting there and I'm just going that's interesting because I know that it's fully charged and I said but you know that thing's charged you should turn it on true you see the point here Absolutely. this is exactly what's going on here Paul's going you guys know that you've actually got something really powerful in the Holy Spirit that can live inside of you you need to turn that thing on yeah. and you guys are like that too right we're all like that a bit you go through times in your life where you just think, I've got to handle this thing. No, you don't. You don't have to handle it on your own. You've got to turn the thing on. All right? It's always charged. It's like it's a Holy Spirit having a flat... He's not having a flat day. All right? He never has a flat day. It's not like I'll turn it on and someone's turned the meter box off. It's never like that. Right? You turn it on, His power, His strength, His enabling is always there. You've just got to access it. If you don't access it, it's no one else's fault but yours. True? All right. I had this conversation, um, one of my boys was with me, I had this conversation with another camper in the campsite, really interesting conversation talking about marriage and they've been married I think 45 years and we just had morning tea, I think the previous morning when somebody had been, just had their 55th wedding anniversary and I was pretty impressed by that. It's a long time. and They still love each other. All right? It's important to say that. Yeah, absolutely. A Christian couple. Not that you have to be a Christian to last that long, but um, it seems to help. Um, but anyway, uh, I'm talking to this couple across the road. Not a Christian. He's, an, he's a retired cop from the Goldie. And uh, it's an interesting conversation. We ended up talking about marriage and the damage that kind of gets done because to children because of broken marriages and that sort of stuff. And we ended up talking about selfishness and unselfishness. And... Um, it was an interesting conversation. Then I got to the point, um, I just kind of, I think I made the comment something like, uh, you know, you feel like you're going to miss out when you're being unselfish, but the, uh, it's counterintuitive because you actually, there's a blessing that comes through unselfishness, right? And it actually, this is, this is a whole Jesus kind of said, you lose your life, you keep it. Jesus' stuff works in reverse most of the time, right? So when you read it, you just got to go, okay, well, there's a trick. There's always a trick pretty much to what Jesus says, right? It's a good trick, but it's a trick, all right? It works in reverse a lot of the time. So if we got to the point where I was just kind of going, well, we're talking about unselfishness, let's give Jesus a swing, right? So I just said, look, we're Christians and um, we follow Jesus and Jesus says a lot of stuff about unselfishness. Now, what was fascinating was the, uh, the lady's expression on her face, <laughs> It was like she just sucked on a green lemon or something, right? She was in some kind of post-operative pain um, sitting there just because I brought Jesus into it. And then the conversation changed really, really quickly after that. And literally, the way I said it was like I just told you. And it's an interesting test, you know. I found this uh, in... um In in some of my dealings with people, you know, sometimes you have conversations like that and you could say, well, if I didn't mention Jesus, it wouldn't be awkward. And I I think, I mean, she kind of reacted really quickly. She goes, look, she goes, but you still have to look after yourself, don't you? Otherwise, you can't look after other people. And I said, yeah, but, and I kind of said this nice, I didn't say it quite like this, but I said, yeah, but I don't think that's really our problem. A problem, our extreme, is not that we're look, not looking after ourselves enough. It's that we're looking after ourselves too much, you know. And it was just graded a bit. And the counterintuitive side of Jesus sometimes grates a bit. And, and I'll just throw this out for you now. I was thinking about this on the holidays. I thought, is God, is God for me just a God of convenience? See, God was incredibly inconvenient for Paul, incredibly inconvenient. And look at the effect that Paul had, and I just think, I wonder how much do I just push God into corners where he's safe and I'm happy for him to be, and don't let him dominate. I'm I'm a little bit more Hindu than what I'd like to admit, you know, I add into my collection of other things that I focus on. Point three. The treasure averts a foregone conclusion. Check this out. We are afflicted in every way. You would think afflicted, crushed. No, not crushed. Perplexed, you'd be despairing. No, not despairing. You see, the the treasure, the power that's within you, averts foregone conclusions. It averts Murphy's Law persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. This is coming from this guy. This is at the start of 2 Corinthians. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. This is interesting because he's just said here... Um, perplexed but not driven to despair but listen to what he says in uh, 2 Corinthians 1 indeed we felt that we had received the sentence of death but that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many Do you notice? He says, like if you you get to the end of that and you go, he's actually not despairing. He's despaired of life, but he's not despairing. And that's what the treasure that lives inside of you can do. You can be under incredible pressure and you can handle it. And the foregone conclusion that everyone else can look at you and go, I don't know how you're going to do that. It's going to end here. And you just go, well, no, not necessarily. Thank you. Because I've actually got some power and some strength living inside of me that goes beyond the human, beyond the natural. I have a supernatural power and strength living inside of me to get it done so that that doesn't have to end that way. True? And I'm not saying that you have control over circumstances. A lot of circumstances, well, I said a while ago in the anxiety, you don't have control, right? But you do have control over where your source of strength is and you do have control over the way that you respond to the circumstances that happen to you and the trouble that happens to you the power of god can sustain us see in each of these situations for paul the conclusion is averted by god's power and he knew about being under pressure i'll tell you the last one's this. this is where we're going to finish i might go five minutes or so over The more death, the more life. Here's how it goes. Paul says, Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And he would know. Five times Paul says, I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three, that's not stoned in the Evans head, gone away. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure." Do you see what he's saying here at the top there in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 12? Oh, 10 to 12. Literally physical death is all around him. But he actually knows that physical death being all around him actually results in life for other people. And it's one of the scary things when you look at the Bible, the degree of life that you bring around the place seems to be proportional to the amount of death that's going on for you. I mean, some of the martyrs of the faith have been some of the most fruitful people, haven't they? And Jesus, in Hebrews, it says Jesus dealt with the fear of death. And you deal with the fear of death and you put yourself to death in the sense that you put your own desires to death. You deny yourself and you live that life. You become an incredibly fruitful, life-giving person. Commentator C.G. Cruz says this, On the one hand, he, Paul, is daily subject to forces which lead to death. But on the other hand, he is continually upheld, caused to triumph and made to be more than a conqueror by the experience of the risen life of Jesus in his mortal body. See, Paul and his companions were continually under pressure and Paul had repeated deliverances from death. But he actually knew that the amount of life that he was that God was working through him, was actually in proportion to the threat of death that was over him. Isn't there that scripture in, uh, I think it's Paul says in Corinthians, he says, uh, even though our physical body is wasting away inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. Do you see that? And, And hopefully you can see, Paul's quite creative in his writing here because he's actually saying, it's like you've got all this death, but there's all this life happening in the midst of the death. It doesn't, it's a bit counterintuitive, it doesn't quite make sense. But it's good news, isn't it? You see, the nature of Christianity is not a matter of life after death, or even life through death, but of life in the midst of death. So let me ask you this question. How much life is happening around you? This would be a good thing to reflect on at the end of 2013. How much life has God created around you? Because it's probably keyed and tied to the amount of death in a sense. Now, sometimes it's physical death in Paul's case. There's certainly a lot of death to self, death to what you want to do. as death to curving in on myself and curving outwards. How much putting to death? have you done? Because probably the amount of putting to death your deeds and your desires is proportional to how much life gets created. I want to show you a short clip I read a couple of scriptures and then we're done. This is a story of a, uh, a Maasai warrior. I may have shown this one here before. The video is a little bit scratchy but um, the audio will be fine. Amazing true story of uh, a guy called Joseph, a Maasai warrior, showed up at Billy Graham at a Billy Graham Crusade. Yeah, a bit of a long story, but uh, his story ended up getting told. This is uh, his story.
1: One day, Joseph, this is the Maasai warrior who showed up in Amsterdam from his tribe. One day, Joseph who was walking along one of these hot, dirty African roads met someone who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. And then and there he accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. The power of the Spirit began transforming his life and he was filled with such excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to do was return to his own village and there share the good news to the members of his own local tribe. Joseph began going from door to door telling everyone he met about the cross suffering and the salvation that it offered expecting to see their faces light up the way his had and to his amazement the villagers not only didn't care they became violent the men of the village seized him held him to the ground while the women beat him with strands of barbed wire he was dragged from the village and left to die alone in the bush. Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a water hole, and there, after days of passing in and out of consciousness, found the strength to get up. He wondered about the hostile reception that he had received from people he had known all his life. He decided he must have said something wrong or left something out from the story of Jesus. After rehearsing the message that he gave at first, he decided to go back and share this message again. Joseph limped into the circle of huts and began to proclaim Jesus. He died for you so that you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God, he pleaded. Again, he was grabbed by the men of the village and held while the women beat him, reopening wounds that had just begun to heal. Once more, they dragged him unconscious from the village and left him to die. To have survived the first beating was truly remarkable. To live through the second was a miracle. Again, days later, Joseph awoke in the wilderness, bruised, scarred, determined to go back. He returned to the small village and this time they attacked him before he had a chance to open his mouth. As they flogged him for the third and possibly the last time, he again spoke to them, Jesus Christ, the Lord. Before he passed out, the last thing he saw was the women who were beating him began to weep. This time he awoke in his own bed. The ones who had so severely beaten him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health. And the entire village came to Christ.
0: challenge, yeah? That was in a John Piper sermon co- titled, Called to Suffer. It's pretty full on. I mean, it, Paul's not in a 4 bedroom, double lock-up garage, en house, saying death isn't working me while life isn't working you. He's getting beaten up, stoned, whipped, shipwrecked. really challenges some of my notions of having a convenient God. But it's Christmas, right? It's Christmas. And here's where we finish. Jesus is the ultimate death and life, is he not? Check this out, Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. You can actually do that who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He made himself nothing. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death death on a cross. You see, if life and death are tied together, proportionally, the amount of death is the amount of life. No one beats Jesus, right? Right? He died the most excruciating death out of anyone. He was the one who emptied himself the most. You could never empty yourself as much as Jesus. Never. Never, never could. He had everything. He, had, he was infinite. He had every treasure, every gift. He lived in a dustless, um, dirt-free, sin-free, perfect heaven. And he emptied himself of all of that and came down and was slaughtered on a Roman cross. That's the ultimate... Death is at work in Christ, so life is at work in you. Do you see that? And not just in you, but in you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, billions of times over, probably. Do you see that? It's amazing. It's amazing that we've got a Savior that emptied himself of everything, that embraced death, and out of the midst of death came what? Life. Life. See, this is Christmas. You see, he's a cute baby, isn't he, in the pictures? But you know what you're seeing? Even if he's a cute baby in reality, and maybe he was, all right, he's still nothing even close to the splendor that he had had prior to that. Even before the suffering of the Christ, he he has disrobed himself of all of his splendor to be a human baby in a manger. There's already Christ has put things to death that were rightfully his to become that baby. And Romans 5 echoes this, um, in verse 12 and 17, and this is where I'll finish, and we'll pray. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who was that? Adam? Come on, ladies, blame him. All right, because that's what it says. Okay, even though Eve ate first, it says clearly it was Adam. Okay, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. See that. One man disobeyed. He brought about death to all. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness from Jesus reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You see that? Adam gave us death. Jesus took on death. He put all of his desires to death. He emptied himself. He became nothing for us. And what happens? Abundant grace, righteousness and life. And Jesus calls you and I to follow in his footsteps, footsteps. Amen? He does. So why don't you pray with me? Why don't you stand with me and we'll pray and we're done. Jesus, thank you for emptying yourself of, uh, of everything, really. And uh, I think as C.S. Lewis said, imagine what it would be like to become a slug. That would, that's what it would be like for something close maybe to what it would be like for God to become a human. Yeah. You emptied yourself of everything. You put to death your desires, your rights, and then you were put to death. But in the midst of death, life comes. It's counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense to us. We think we need to save our life. To keep it, you say lose it. For my sake, we think maybe we're getting old. We've got to preserve our life. You say, look, I'm going to renew you inwardly, day by day, in the midst of the threat of physical death. There's life, and on top of all of that, God, through your Holy Spirit living inside of us, there's power, and we desperately need help. That's for, that's for sure. We We actually need power. And God, I pray for everyone here today and I pray that you'd help. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that they would thwart consequences or uh, maybe not consequences, but they would thwart foregone conclusions. God, that that would be their story of 2013. Someone said this about me, this was going to happen to me. I trusted in God. The, uh, the circumstance still happened, but I didn't end up in the place that everyone thought that I would. Why? Because of your power, God. I pray that that would be our story, that would be our song for this year. God, please uh, help us to, to recognize that and help us to switch on to your Holy Spirit and not just live in the natural. Amen.